I'm not a big fan of the now prevalent multi-step identity authentication process that plagues any digital account that you may have. You know, you, you open up the browser, you want to sign into whatever account it, it might be, and then you get this, this prompt, something akin to, we're amping up our security to help keep your information secure. Answer these simple 3,258 questions so that we can make sure you are you. Right? And then they want uh, your phone number, your spouse's phone number, a backup number to those numbers, your childhood phone number, your address, any address that you've ever lived at. And then they say, okay, we're now going to allow you to choose from this little bank of questions uh, so that you can make sure it's you, only you will know these answers. And the questions are ridiculous. You know, uh, what is your neighbor's cat's name? What was your spouse's favorite movie in high school? What was the maiden name of your dad's grandmother's sister's first cousin? And if you're like me, you're going, no, these questions are bad. I'm not going to remember any of these answers. It's a little frustrating if you, if you didn't catch that. But there's a purpose to all the hoopla. What, what, what they're aiming to do is make sure that you are you. They, they want to prove your identity. They want to authenticate. Matthew's gospel works in a really similar way. Matthew aims, he writes with the express purpose of proving to us that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And so he authenticates who Jesus is throughout. We're going to spend our time together this morning looking at some of those ways that Matthew verifies Jesus as the king that we've waited on in the first two chapters of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And our main idea is this, that Jesus is the promised king. And I'm going to exhort you in light of that to come and bow down and worship Jesus. Come and adore him. That kind of fits with our theme of one week. I guess it was last week we used a song as the exhortation. Hail the incarnate deity this week. Same thing, exhortation, song, come, let us adore him. We'll see five verifications. Genealogy, virgin pregnancy, birth, Joseph's dreams, geography, the star, and the magi. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together. Father, we ask that you would help us to focus on Christ. That you would jettison any worries or outside concerns from our minds right now. That we would be entirely consumed with Christmas. Not the pageantry, but our King. We ask that you would speak to us now in a mighty way and that we would be changed. Give us ears to hear. Help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. Help us to walk out of here different than the way we came in. Fill us with the joy that only Jesus can bring. We ask all this in his name. 
Amen. We're not going to read it, but if you look there, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy. It's around 17 verses long, and this is the part of the gospel that you normally skip, right? We're just going to be honest. We skip right over it, but genealogies are really, really fun. And in Matthew's, there's all kinds of these little like winks and mysteries and and puzzle pieces that he's put together. He's arranged his material in a really particular way for a specific purpose. He wants us to see what he writes in verse 1, that this is Jesus's genealogy and that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a word for Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the king that all of Israel has been waiting on. And so he's going to lay out a legal claim to the throne that Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. He wants us to see that. He's going to authenticate Jesus through this genealogy. That's step one. But but if you look at this genealogy, there are some first century oddities to it. Because genealogies used to function kind of like job resumes do today, right? They would prove that you were fit for a particular position. And so we kind of expect this really airbrushed version of Jesus' lineage, especially because people used to leave names out and, and, and kind of you know, arrange things according to their purposes back in the day. But, but Matthew has left some really weird things in. There, there are some blemishes in Jesus' resume here. Paramount among them is the inclusion of women. Women were just not included in genealogies. Be a little bit uh, like including in your job resume, uh, sometimes steals office supplies, right? Not, not a good look for you. Not going not gonna to help you get a job. And so we see just in, in the first few verses, four women, right? And they're not, they're not exactly women of upstanding and noble character. Not what we usually associate with that. Right? We've got Tamar, who uh, in Genesis 38 Uh, dresses as a prostitute to trick her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she can maintain the Messianic bloodline. We've got Rahab, who who lived and worked as a prostitute in Jericho and then hid some Israelite spies so that they wouldn't be discovered and then was, was able to live as a consequence of that. Probably not a great look for those spies. Where'd you hide? With a prostitute. Wait a minute. We've got... Ruth, who cozies up with Boaz, her husband had been deceased, and she proposes that Boaz propose to her by kind of getting in a sleeping bag with him in the middle of the night. And then you have kind of the clincher down there in verse 6. Uriah's wife, who's not, not even named, but we, we know her to be Bathsheba, And it's evident right away that she was not initially the wife of King David. Which brings us to how this this genealogy gets better. It seems like somebody really, really screwed up. Because what you want to do is present all of Jesus' ancestors in the best light. And we, we see just sinner after sinner. Failure after failure. We have these outsiders, these, these women being included in. Like some, Somebody's messed up. And even King David, who's the center of this whole thing, uh, there's 14 generations. It's structured around David. It used to be a Jewish practice with numbers where uh, if you went like 14, 14, you could get DVD. It would spell out David's name. There's all kinds of things in this genealogy, right? 
centered around David. David's is the middle name in the list, and, and it makes sense. It would make sense for Matthew to make a big deal or a big fuss over David. He, he was the king after God's own heart. He was the one who beheaded the giant Goliath. He was the one who received the promise that one of his descendants would sit the throne forever. But, but here we don't have any light being shined on those kind of accomplishments of David. What, what we see is that he fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. It reminds us of perhaps David's darkest sins when he takes the wife of another I would argue that he rapes her. You don't tell a king no. He sends for her, she comes, he sleeps with her. She sends him a note later saying she's pregnant. And so he then murders Uriah, or arranges for it to happen. There's blood on his hands. But why, why include these details? Right? And it's because I think Matthew's doing two things. He's authenticating Jesus' legal claim, yes, but he's also, also showing us that Jesus has come for the nations, for the outsiders, and even for those people in Israel who thought they were insiders and had it right. See, it's showing us that he has come to save sinners. Jesus comes from a messed up family for messed up people. The family he comes from anticipates the family that he comes for. Jesus has come to bring salvation and forgiveness of sins to all who will submit to his lordship. Matthew is saying the king we have waited on has arrived. And he starts with this genealogy. And he then moves on to the virgin birth, authentication number two we see in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Let the reader understand what they came together means, right? They hadn't done that yet. Matthew tells us this because this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 7, 14 in particular, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. We saw uh, kind of a second part of this prophecy in Isaiah 9 a couple weeks ago. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, but in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of the east of Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of the oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and his kingdom 
to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Matthew is saying the one who sets the captive free, the one who breaks the yoke of sin's oppression, the one who brings joy to the nations, the child that is to be given, the one who is to be born of a virgin has arrived. He's shown up. The the light of the world, the light that is going to dawn in the darkness has come. He's making an announcement. And he's saying that light of the world, the one who comes as the true Davidic king, the light of the world is hidden in the womb of an insignificant virgin girl. It really is surprising Right? We, we expect this Messiah to show up as a great conqueror. We expect him to have a, a full beard and a, a sword in his hand, an army at his back, or at least to show up with a cape and superpowers and an S on his chest. We, we expect him to show up in strength. But instead, we find that this king shows up in weakness. I mean, I, I love babies. But can you think of anything wimpier, weaker than a little baby? Can't even lift up their own head. And this is how the king of the cosmos has showed up. Fullness of God in helpless babe. In weakness. Why? So that he could become killable. God had to become vulnerable so that he might die for sins. This is what Christmas is about. The omnipotent, all-powerful creator becomes weak. The immortal becomes killable. This is what Christmas is about. God taking on flesh and becoming a man so he could live a substitutionary life in your place and die a substitutionary death in your place. This this holiday is about the king who comes to rescue his people. This, This should astound us. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Somewhere in eternity past, God the Son agreed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit to resign himself to swimming in amniotic fluid, enduring scraped knees and bruised elbows, experiencing hunger and thirst, resigned himself to the bitterness of betrayal, agreed to suffer under the full weight of God's wrath on the cross for our sins. This is the miraculous Love of God. Christmas is the announcement that you couldn't save yourself. And so God had to come. God's love for us is this extraordinary. God's love for you is this ridiculous. This is why we rejoice in Christ. Friend, 
Jesus loves you. you know, it seems simple, but it's, it's not. Christmas was not simple. It's profound. Jesus, I, I want you to know, Jesus is not angry at you, you know, kind of uh, pursed lips, arms crossed, wagging his finger, red face. No, no. Jesus loves you. This is the God that took on flesh to reconcile you to himself. He's not mad at you. He's moving towards you. Arms wide open. Ready to embrace you. Offer you a cup of coffee. Or if you're like Glenn, maybe cocoa. Glenn doesn't like coffee. I know, shameful. This is Jesus' posture. He loves you. He welcomes you. He he invites you to enter into the joy you were made for, which is relationship with God. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He is gentle and humble at heart. He exercises His lordship for your joy. There's no need to be afraid of repenting of your sin. Sin always promises more than it can deliver. It overpromises and underdelivers every single time. And so Jesus' call to repent of your sin and to come to Him for fullness of joy, it's really, really a good deal. He always delivers each and every time. He is the joy that you have been looking for. He is the King who will put a smile on your face. The King who you will delight to serve. And He started His earthly reign by being conceived in the womb of an insignificant virgin girl. It's unbelievable what God has done for us. No, truly, it's really unbelievable. So much so that uh, Joseph doesn't believe it. Joseph is Mary's boo, if you didn't know. And this is what we read about him after, after the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way, verse 18, after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered that before they had slept together, she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. And so you can kind of see how this conversation goes. They're sitting around and uh, Mary says to him, Joey, 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 listen, got some hard news. Um, I'm a virgin. Don't, I don't want you to get the wrong idea here. I've been faithful, but I'm just a, a teensy-weensy bit pregnant with the Son of God. And Joseph, he wasn't born yesterday. He says, of course you are, and I'm Batman. He doesn't, he doesn't quite believe her right away. And so, I don't know if Joseph thinks that she's crazy or that she slept with someone else at this point, but either way, he says, uh, this is a bad beat, man. I have, to, I have to change this. The righteous thing to do here I don't want to shame her totally, but I'm going to have to 
divorce her and we'll do it quietly. You can imagine as he's like laying on his bed at night, getting ready to fall asleep, he's like this. What has come over Mary that she would start talking like this? Like, why not? I would rather she be honest with me than lying about being pregnant with the Son of God. I mean, come on. And like falls off to sleep. And then verse 20 happens. After he'd considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. The virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Joseph woke up. It's at this point, Joseph has a decision to make, right? Because... He can believe the word of the Lord and obey and take Mary as his wife, but that's going to cost him something. See, Joseph is a righteous man. He has a pretty good reputation. But Joseph also lives in a shame-honor culture. And so you see what's going to happen. If he proceeds to marry Mary, the whispers are going to start. And the shame is going to come. Don't you know they slept together before they were married? Shame, reputation, sullied. Or maybe the other side. You know he still married her even after she ran around on him, the little harlot? Reputation, sullied. So on the one hand, Joseph, he could divorce Mary and keep his great reputation. But on the other hand, If he obeys God, he's ensuring his public shame. For Joseph to obey God's word to him here and take Mary as his wife is to guarantee the loss of his reputation. If he kisses Mary as his bride, he will have to kiss his sterling reputation goodbye. This Christmas story is not a, a trite, cutesy little thing. These are real people with with real issues. And Joseph decides that obedience to God is more important than his reputation. He, He says, obedience to God is more important than my Facebook friends list. I wonder, friends, do you trust God with your reputation? Do you love him more than you love the applause of culture? Whose approval are you living for? Joseph decided to live for the smile of God, for the glory of Christ, rather than for himself. Also, we'll notice here in coming segments that this cost remains high. It's not like he goes, all right, I'm going to obey you, Lord, and then everything is kittens and rainbows. No, he, 
he gets moved around over and over and over again, this way and that way. His whole family becomes at risk because they are harboring Jesus. Imagine he and Mary probably had planned what they would do with their lives. And all at once, Christmas ruins Joseph's life. Christmas ruins Joseph's plans. The arrival of Jesus blows everything they thought they wanted up. And they've got to start over. God will set the agenda for Joseph's life from this point forward. This is what Jesus demands of all who would follow him. That he set the agenda for your life. What does your calendar say about who is in charge of you? Joseph decides to listen to the word of the Lord and to obey it. He woke up. He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. He did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and named him Jesus. This passage just shows us how crucial it is to listen to and obey God. Like listening is vital to any good relationship. You probably know this if you're married or you have a significant other. Or you've maybe had the experience where uh, you're watching a football game or you're reading a book or you're scrolling on your phone casually and your spouse comes and begins speaking to you. And you're a little annoyed at them, not really into kind of hearing everything they have to say at that point in time. But you don't say anything. You kind of give it like half an ear, almost hear them like a little Charlie Brown voice. Wah, 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 wah. And then you get done doing what you're doing, maybe like an hour or two later, and you come back to your spouse and you say, hey, what's going on with this or that? And they turn to you. They give you that kind of red face. Looks like the angry kind of emoji with the frowny face. Weren't you listening to me? Friends, poor listening is tantamount to poor loving. Listening, how you listen is directly related to how you love those you are in relationship with. Listening is vital to our relationship with God. That's why we want to give ourselves to reading his word, studying his word, meditating on his word, preaching his word, and listening to his word preached. It's funny, sometimes uh, when folks find out how long I typically preach, if you're new here, it's around three hours. It's funny, when I tell people how long I typically preach, they'll go, oh, brother, you have to change that? People cannot pay attention that, that long. All the studies show. It's like 10, maybe 15 minutes. You, you, you can't talk that long. And I go, really? How is Netflix so successful? Why is the movie industry doing so well? And, and who is watching all of these football games that are three and four hours? Am I the only one? See, you pay attention to, you listen to, you give your time to that which you love. 
Listening is about loving, and God's people love to listen to His voice through His Word. What does your listening say about your love of God? Are you willing to listen and obey as Joseph? Or do you listen when it suits your needs and you kind of like what God is saying and ignore his voice when you don't like what he's saying? Perhaps about your sex life or your stewardship of your money or your treatment of your spouse. Are you willing to listen and obey whatever God tells you, knowing that it's for your joy because Jesus is the king who's after your joy the king who died so that you could know the joy of relationship with God Joseph listens and obeys and it costs him he he doesn't set the agenda for his life anymore things get a little crazy I told you they moved but look how much they moved verse 13 of chapter 2 I'm kind of skipping over. They went to Bethlehem. Matthew doesn't really talk about that a whole, whole bunch, right? It's just like, hey, they were in Bethlehem. Jesus was born. But the way they get to Bethlehem is God uses the Roman Empire kind of like a pawn to put them in the city of Bethlehem. It has purpose, but we'll, we'll double back to that. Then from Bethlehem, they have to flee as refugees into Egypt because Herod's trying to kill Jesus. We read about it, verse 13, chapter 2. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up! Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. But Joseph, even after all this, isn't done moving. Look at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And Joseph's like, oh no, this again. Joseph is in Egypt saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel because those who intend to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, I don't know if he's drinking chocolate milk before bed or what's going on. But being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Why all this movement? Why doesn't God just, you know, like the mythological Zeus, just lightning bolt, kill some of these guys? Or even get more creative like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, make them go crazy and start eating grass so that they're not a threat. Because God is doing something in this movement of Jesus across geographical locations. He's fulfilling his word that was written hundreds and thousands of years prior to Jesus showing up. He's authenticating Jesus' identity, and Matthew's pointing that out to us. And so, uh, being born in Bethlehem, Right? There, there's this whole scene we'll get into in a second, but, but the, the magi, magi, they, wise men, and, you know, they, they show up and they're like, they come to King Herod and they say, where's the king? <laughs> it's not a great start. Uh, and Herod 
doesn't like this. He's disturbed by it. And so he gets his scribes together and the chief priest. And he says, where is this Jewish king, this Jewish Messiah supposed to be born? And we see in verse 6, they tell him, Bethlehem. And they're actually quoting from Micah chapter 5. I'm going to read it to you in context, verses 2 through 4. Bethlehem, Epaphra, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will, abandon, will be abandoned until this time, when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus is the good shepherd who was born in Bethlehem, who brings peace to the ends of the earth as magi, wise men, come from the ends of the earth to worship him. The flight out of Egypt, if you remember when we went into the Exodus, right? Jesus draws Israel, whom he calls his son, out of Egypt and into relationship with him. What's going on here? He's identifying Jesus as the embodiment of everything that Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is God's true beloved son, who he is calling out of the land of Egypt. And then we get to this bit about Nazareth. And if you, if you look for a straight-up prophecy that says Jesus, or the Messiah, is going to be called a Nazarite, you're going to look in vain. Matthew is drawing upon this theme that the Messiah will be despised. And so Nazareth is a land that is despised by the Jews. And so if you want to think about it in contemporary terms, uh, Nazareth was a little bit like Cleveland or New Jersey. Nobody likes those places, kind of despised. I know some of you are from there. Okay, love you anyway. Uh, but Jesus is despised. I mean, you remember that note, Philip, in John's gospel. He comes to Nathaniel. He's like, I found the Messiah. Like, he's from Nazareth. <laughs> and Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the response is, come and see. And what we find is that Jesus is going to be rejected. He's going to be despised just as is prophesied of the Messiah. There also might be a wordplay going on here. The word for Nazarene sounds like the Hebrew word for branch, which is another messianic designation. We see it in Isaiah 11.1 at the beginning. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. You see what Matthew's doing here, what God is doing and what Matthew is revealing is he is authenticating Jesus as the Messiah King. Jesus is the promised King who is to come to bring forgiveness of sins to his people, to all who will repent of sin and believe in the gospel. Indeed, Jesus is the King. And so naturally, since he is the king that will bring peace to the ends of the earth, the magi come to visit him. Look at the beginning of chapter 2 again. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. 
So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes, the people, and asked them where the Christ would be born. They said, in Bethlehem of Judea. They told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, Magi, Magi, and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me, so that I too can go and worship him. Drop down to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the wise men, Magi, returned to their own country by another route. Now verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, Magi, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, in keeping with the time he learned from the wise men, Magi, Magi. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children as she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Not everyone is thrilled about the arrival of this king. The wise men show up and they come to King Herod and they ask him, where is the real king? And if you're a king, that's really disconcerting. Hey, we know you're the king, but where's, where's the real king? And so Herod comes up with this plan. He's going to try to seek out Jesus. He, he wants to kill this king before he could possibly be crowned. The wise men, though, they don't return to him. When he discovers this, he gets really angry and he arranges for a massacre of children at Bethlehem. And Bethlehem's a little tiny city, and so it only comes out to about 20 or 30 children. But that does not mitigate the brutality of the act. The heinousness of this infanticide fits well with Herod's character. Historically, we know that he was paranoid about his rule. He would do anything to protect his kingship. Now, Caesar Augustus famously quipped that he would rather be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons. Herod actually arranged for the killing of one of his favorite wives. I don't know how you're the favorite and you end up dead, but apparently. He also made sure that a brother-in-law suffered an unfortunate drowning accident. Then he also hired assassins to strangle two of his sons. Thus, Augustus' quote. Herod is perhaps just a really good picture of evil and of wickedness. But here's something really startling, friends. If you look in the mirror and you look hard enough, you'll see that you look just like Herod. There's a little Herod within each of us that wants to be king, queen, wants to rule everything about our lives, wants the world to revolve around us. See, the Bible says the cause of all the sin in the world is the selfishness, self-absorption, that comes from the human heart. Our self-centeredness, us being self-centered rather than being God-centered, 
breeds and multiplies sin. So you see what happens when Jesus shows up. Herod gets mad because he understands that Jesus is a threat to his rule and his sovereignty. Christmas is offensive. And if it hasn't offended you, I don't know that you've understood it. Because what's happening at Christmas is Jesus is showing up and he's saying, you don't get to be in charge of your life anymore. Christmas is about a king arriving and saying, I have the right to rule your life. Repent from your sins and believe in me. Give up your fake kingship and come to me, the true king. And when Jesus shows up and says that to sinners, the little Herod within us rises up, stomps his foot, and says, No! This is my life. And I'll live it however I want, thank you. And Jesus is is loving and patient. And indeed, he came the first time to bear our judgment. Bear the judgment of sin for all who will trust in him and lay down their arms. But he will not suffer rivals forever. For those who insist on persisting in rebellion against him, he will return with a sword in his hand and the host of heaven at his back, a tattoo on his thigh, ready to pour out God's justice. It will roll down like waters as he ends evil and sets everything to right. Christmas doesn't allow for prideful boasting. It doesn't allow for arrogance or for self-rule, which is why Christianity itself and Christmas has always appealed to the weak. It's for the weak and weary, for the burnt out and the hopeless, for, for all those who will come to Jesus and say, you're right, I've made a mess of this thing. I need forgiveness for my sin. I can't make myself right with God. I can't find joy anywhere except in you. That's who Christmas is for. And many will be like Herod and scorn Christmas and its king, but others, others like the magi, magi, wise men, will come to the king. They come to the king. Look in verse 9 of chapter 2. After hearing the king, they went on their way, King Herod. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. This is some crazy supernatural confirmation of Jesus, by the way. Like they're, they're following a star. I don't know what that worked like. If it was like Tinkerbell going out in front of them, I don't, I don't know. Some supernatural's going on. God's confirming that this is his king. It stopped above the place where the child was. Jesus, by the way, is about a toddler at this point. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him, paid homage to him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
These wise men follow the star. Jesus is born and they come to worship him as the newborn king, to pledge allegiance to him, to bend the knee to him. That's what these gifts of frankincense and myrrh and gold are about. They're not symbolic mysteries that we have to figure out. No, they're about honoring a king. They're gifts you give to a king. They're not coming to give a really late belated baby shower. They're coming to coronate a king and pledge their allegiance to him. Matthew is showing us through these historical events that Jesus is the promised Messiah, King of God, who brings forgiveness of sins, who saves all who come to him in faith. Matthew's going to continue to do that throughout the rest of his gospel. Show us that Jesus is the good and mighty king who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our obedience, worthy of our whole lives. But Christmas, this good news, does bring us to a point of decision. We have to decide, are we going to recognize Jesus as the one who delivers us from our sin? As the one who suffered and died in our place on the cross beneath God's wrath and rose from the dead, so that we can have the hope of resurrection life. Is he who he said he was? Is he really the king of Christmas? Is he really going to make everything sad untrue? Is he really going to vanquish death forever? Is he going to abolish it when he returns? Is he really going to remove the sting of pain and suffering from life? Is he really going to make everything good again? Because that's what Christmas is about. And if If we believe that, then we must submit to Jesus. And so here's the decision before us this morning. We can scorn and rage at Jesus, the king of Christmas, like Herod, or we can come to him in humble submission and have our sins forgiven and enjoy relationship with God like the Magi. We can come and adore him like the Magi. Which will you do? Brothers and sisters, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your miraculous, steadfast, unfaltering, unfailing love. We thank you that you love messed up sinners like us. We thank you that instead of snuffing us out, as we deserved, instead of resigning us to an eternity in hell justly, you sent Jesus to take all of that punishment on the cross for our sin. You sent Jesus to live a perfect life for us. You sent Jesus to save us from our sins and so that we might be adopted into your family. This is good news. God, help us to believe it. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to see and savor Jesus, our King. He is so good. And in Him there is fullness of joy. In His name we pray. Amen.